if you haven't been with us in the last six weeks, we're in week seven of a series we've simply titled A New Kind of Family. It's a study through a unique book, the book of Galatians, that Paul writes. I'll tell more about that in a few minutes. But one of the themes we've been looking at, and one we're going to explore more today, is this theme of what Paul calls freedom. I want you to just think for a minute of what you think freedom actually is. In your own mind, what is it? If you look it up in the dictionary, you might hear something. It's, it's being able to say, think, and act without hindrance. That's how the dictionary would describe it. As you think of it in your own life, not only what does it mean, but think about what would bring freedom. Think about the things right now that you go, if, if only I'd be free. Now, it better not be the person you're sitting next to or something like that, but just think about it for a minute and consider it. It's interesting. Most of us When we think of freedom, we think of financial freedom a lot of times. That's a very common one that we have. I know when I was growing up, and I don't don't even know if they do this anymore, they had Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes. And oddly, when I got to be aware of that, I suddenly thought, my life will be different if I just have all this money. And then I, of course, do what everyone does, and God, I'll do great things for you. And then I start to think about, well, if I had more freedom financially, what would it mean? What would it really do for me? And could it really bring what I want it to bring? Would financial freedom really be freedom? And you could begin to consider other areas of freedom. Maybe there's something else you would consider. But when we do, in general, what we mean by freedom is the world around me works in a way that I like and doesn't cause me distress or struggle. I can keep it under control. That's freedom when it works for me, right? And amen to that. Why can't we have more of that? But we know it wouldn't really satisfy. So Paul writes this letter to this group of churches in Galatia. Now, if you're not familiar with Paul, Paul is a guy uh, who is born into the Jewish culture. He also has Roman history, so he's a little bit living in the best of the two major kind of influences, at least in where he is. He grows up as a really devout Jew, and when this whole idea of Jesus and the resurrection is being put forward, he's protective and angry for the Jews to the point where he's going out either imprisoning or even watching and overseeing the killing of Christians. He has this major moment when God miraculously and supernaturally reveals himself that Jesus says, why are you doing this? And he moves from terrorist to champion. And from there, he moves even outside of the Jewish world and begins to go through the Roman world and tell people about this resurrection. And the church begins to emerge all through Asia Minor. So through some of his trips, we get to this one. He goes through a series of areas near Galatia. It's a region in the southern part of Turkey. And at the beginning, things are going pretty powerfully as these individuals are discovering what the resurrection of Jesus means and the new life it brings to them. Now, he hears those stories of struggles they're having later and writes these letters back. That's what we're looking at and have been. If you haven't been with us, as I said, we're in week seven. You can go back and watch the first six weeks online. Think of it as your own little Netflix binge, only it's your church binge, it's your Jesus binge. And you get a better picture. But where we are in currently is that Paul is going to focus on freedom, on what it means. Now, I, I want to be clear that this is a group of people that live under Roman oppression. He is not talking about external freedom or even financial freedom or freedom the way we would currently describe it. It's something bigger and different. And this is the simple idea I want you to get. It's a freedom that's unshakable. In other words, whatever happens cannot prevent it. It is a new kind of freedom. And it's meant for these people that are following Jesus to bring to the world, not for themselves. So that's where we take it up is Paul writing about this. And we'll look at what he has to say. 
He says this as we look at Galatians and we're into the fifth chapter and we begin at verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now, I want you to understand very simply that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we often talk about the church, how Jesus died for our sins. True meaning he pays a price we can't. It gives us life from death, and we believe ultimately we'll be with God. But unfortunately, that's where we kind of leave it. Well, Jesus died, and I got to get out of a free card. What Paul's saying here is, guess what? The whole point of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is to bring freedom to us. It's to bring call. It's a new way of living. Something different for us that's never happened before. Now, I want you to think of freedom this way. What, what it simply means is that God wants to restore in us the way he made us to live the life he has for us. You see, at creation, God makes man and woman to, under his authority, manage the world. And we basically say, no thanks, let's be like you. We want to dig our design our own way, and it brings destruction. It's the reason for the mess you and I are in. We all, let's be honest, we all want it for ourselves, don't we? Can we be honest about that? Thank you. I love the amen. I appreciate that. The rest of you are like, no, I'm not supposed to say that. I'm a Christian. <laughs> Let's be honest. We struggle. So what happens is our design is flawed now. So I want you to understand when Jesus dies and rises and gives new life, it's to restore and even reclaim what God initially intended, to let us live as we are supposed to and were originally made to in relationship with him and with each other. It's not just forgiveness, it's new life. It's beautiful, by the way, in case you don't get it. I, I don't want to overwhelm you with such powerful things that you're bored by so quickly, but it's pretty amazing. We're all so quiet. I just, I love the quiet. You know, it's, come on. So anyway, uh, I want us to think of it this way. You're free when you're doing what you're made to do. So I have a really nice Paul Reed Smith guitar. It is not meant to hammer nails with. Definitely not meant for that. It's really not meant to play some cheesy little soft music on. That thing is meant to shred. That's what it's made for. I'm just telling you it is. Others will use it. They're wrong. <laughs> you have a car that drives fast. It's really not made to slowly move around or just sit in the driveway and go, oh, this is nice. What's it made for? It thrives when it's made for what it's used for. Paul is very simply saying, God is taking what was broken from the beginning of creation and he's making us free to actually live as we were designed to. By the way, this is not central to this passage, but I want you to think about this. Which is more impressive, that God made the earth, the heavens and the earth, and made us in his image, or that God is remaking us in his image through his death and resurrection? Come on. We are the beginning of the recreation of what he's doing. I mean, he cooked really good at the beginning, but I'm telling you, he's recooking. It's awesome. Now, what he's doing is cautioning us. Hey, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Now, I think by our own way of seeing things, at least for me, I hear indulge the flesh, and I'm thinking, oh, so don't do anything that's fun or kind of naughty or bad. It's like, don't eat too much dessert. Don't do the wrong thing. You know, you eat too much dessert, it's bad. That's not what it means here. Indulge literally can also mean to build a foundation around. In other words, it's what you bank on. It's what you build from. It's or even to be opportunistic. To indulge is to use every opportunity you can. And so when he says the flesh... 
what he's saying is the way we live for ourselves, don't build your life around that. Don't indulge the flesh. You're not free. You weren't made to look out for me. You're made, and he says, where you're really going to find freedom is to serve one another humbly. And we've been looking at this all the weeks, haven't we? Love. Oh, by the way, it's about love. Oh, in case you don't know, it's about love. Oh, did I forget to tell you it's about love? That's where we're building it. But he's saying, serving one another humbly in love. Now, this is the paradox that will confuse all of us, and we'll see if you believe me or not. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is, God made us, and he made us in a way that's like him, and the way we find freedom is actually by helping and serving each other in love, not by looking out for ourselves. You realize that's very confusing to how we live, don't you? I mean, let's be honest. I'll serve people as long as or to a limit. It's fascinating that, you know, I love the fact that people research all of us all the time, but those of us who are older, they look at us and go, you're a lot more self-serving. And then the younger ones, they go, well, you serve other people. But then they look at why we serve and they find out, guess what? The younger ones who serve other people do it so they feel better about themselves. And the older ones, well, they're their own problem. I'm just kidding. I'm in the older ones, so. It's just a picture that we're not naturally inclined to help other people. We're naturally inclined to help ourselves. And just to be clear about what I mean by how we're made, we understand, and this is very beautiful and mysterious, God is one, and yet God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're three in one. That's what we understand. It means God is one, and yet God is also distinctly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you know who the Father seeks to lift up? The Son. Do you know who the Son seeks to lift up? The Father. Do you know who the Spirit seeks to lift up? The Son and the Father. Within God, within his own, within who he is, the all-knowing, forever-existing, pre-existing one, he cares about otherness. We are made in his image. Guess what we'll be fulfilled in? Living and loving others. Paul's saying you actually live the way God made you when you live this way, but through the fall, through sin, we live for ourselves. It's crazy to think that we'll actually find freedom by helping each other instead of by looking out for ourselves, isn't it? But it's when we actually find who we really are. Paul continues. He says, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. Now this way, Paul is using the law, which if you've been with us, he's used it in a negative way way in terms of the battle that's going on in Galatia is they have people who'd been Jewish that are now following Jesus and people who had not been Jewish, they call them Gentiles, are following Jesus. The ones that have been are saying to the Gentiles, you have to do all the Jewish things alongside of Jesus, all these rules and laws. So he's been saying, man, you are, and they're fighting and they're a mess through it all. And Paul, this whole letter is bringing them back to, it's just about Jesus, it's just about Jesus, it's just about Jesus. Now he's summarizing what Jesus said the law was about, which, by the way, is love your neighbor as yourself. So let me pause for a minute on this. I would be curious who we would say our neighbor is today. And by the way, this was the question all through Jesus' time. It was all through history. Israelites were constantly saying, well, who's our neighbor? And, and, and side note, do, do you even know your neighbors? <laughs> if you're like me, we live in a day and age where our neighbors are people that close their garages when they go by and open them up when they go out. And sometimes they run their mower when they shouldn't and it's keeping me awake or they do something else when they shouldn't or their dog comes and craps on our yard, which is bothering me or I, you know, whatever, play it out. These are not real examples from my life, but. <laughs> they aren't, they aren't. Oh, I'm in trouble already, I'm sweating. 
I had a neighbor that just wished I did my yard. He was a big yard guy, and I was like, Malcolm in the middle yard. If you don't know what that is, it's just like a yard that looks like a field. And the guy was just looking at me like, dude, you're a blight on the whole country, the whole world around us. And I lived in Holland at the time. Dutch people, oh my goodness, do they love their yards. It's like, I didn't know a yard could be an idol, but apparently I've violated it. Oh, oh where was I talking about again? Oh, I'm just kidding. We're back, we're back to, uh, to neighbors. It's interesting, first of all, just that I don't even know if we know our, our literal neighbors. And we just say, well, we don't know them, they are. But all through the history of Israel, they were asking, who is my neighbor? And it's a question they asked Jesus. And really, it was amazing to me, not just at his answer, but some years ago, we, we did a four-year plan where we read through the whole Bible as a church, and we did short stints of it. And the year that we read through the New Testament, which is all the stuff of Jesus' account and all the way through the, the rest of the history we have in the early church, we read it as a group. And what was interesting was all of us had grown up hearing Bible stories and knowing about Jesus, but everyone was shocked when they actually saw what Jesus said, even though they'd read parts of it before. And one of the shocking things was when Jesus said things like, hey, love your enemies. Wait a minute, you've got to be kidding me. Now, we've taken that one down, haven't we? I mean, let's be honest. We've, we have friends we don't even love because they're close enough to enemies. We've decided they're that. We're living in a day when we've lost that one. But the one that I find most scandalous is when Jesus asks who is my neighbor, or when they ask him who it is, he tells a story about two people who aren't being a good neighbor, and they're both the people that you'd think were heroes in their religious climate. They were, they were basically really religious people that did all they should. So think of the people you would hold in high regard, and then the person he makes a hero is literally the most scathing nemesis of every Jew. And he says, oh, by the way, they're the neighbor, go be like that. He makes a hero the person everyone hates. I want you to think about that for a minute. Love your neighbor. I want you to think about the people you judge most severely. That's who Jesus says is your neighbor. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? That's what Paul keeps coming back to because they have people that they should even be neighbors with and they're not even doing it. And then he points out what happens. You bite and devour each other. You better watch out because you're going to destroy each other. In case you don't want to know what he means by bite and devour, I know it's its own metaphor. It literally, it literally looks just like this. Like it is an animalistic, that is literally what he's saying. It's like animals feeding on each other. Now you can pick which of the two you are and which is right, but you realize that the church has struggled with this through all our history? Do you know the church has gone to war and killed each other over different aspects of our belief? We've literally gone to war. People have been burned at the stake because one group thought God being sovereign was important, another thought free will was, and they took them out. People have killed each other over the fact Catholics and Protestants. Did you know up until recently we killed each other over all sorts of things like that? And if we don't kill, we just move it to a wonderful disdain and contempt for each other. I'm the church. No, I'm the church. No, I'm the church. No, I'm the church. You suck. No, you suck. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I hate you. Blah. That's how we've lived. I know it's horrible. I'm sorry. It's just where it is. But we're kind of in a new iteration of it today, aren't we? We bite and devour each other all the time. Now, we don't do it physically. There's probably some of that, but mostly we do it just in words. We do it in likes. Oh, they got that one bad. Like, 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 like. Oh, they got, oh, like, like, like. They like that. They like that. Oh, I hate them. I hate them. Let's devour. Let's hate each other. Oh, that's wonderful. Good job. I mean, that's kind of where we are today. In this ongoing place of disdain and biting and devouring one another. And Paul says, when you lose sight of it, 
that's what you look like. And in case you don't know, this is why no one's paying attention to us. Like I know I'm hammering on this all through Galatians, and Paul, and Paul did too, and I think there's a good reason for it. Because quite honestly, we all need to get woken up to this stuff. We are so busy trying to be right and trying to say who's right and who's wrong that we've forgotten how to love each other. And instead, we're biting and devouring one another. And we will destroy each other through this. It will somehow take us down. And so I hear Paul's words. And, and make no mistake, I, I don't want you to think that I'm somehow thinking I'm past this. Because I'll, I'll agree with you, I can do the same thing. Like I am catching myself going, oh my goodness, I am ready to be against this one or against that one. I can't believe they'd think this way. If they do this now, I can't be in real. I mean... I'm in the same place going, oh, God, I've lost the sense of loving people. I'm so busy fighting and arguing and trying to be right. Paul's saying when you live this way differently, it changes how you live. He continues, and then he gives a really clear way to live. I say to you, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, again, Paul has a Jewish audience as well as a Gentile one. When he says walk by the Spirit, especially for the Jewish audience, this would have significant meaning. The Jews had two words they used to describe the inner and outer world of faith, and the inner world was Haggadah, and it literally meant to chew on, to regularly kind of reflect and chew on who God is and what he wants and how he lives, this private way of living. And then Halakha meant that it should lead to how we walk in it, how we live publicly. That's what it's supposed to do. So what he's saying very simply is, hey, you need to actually walk by the Spirit. You need to actually live by the power of God. We're going to come back to what all of that means. But he's giving us a fact that it should be reflected in how you live, not just how you think. And make no mistake, we, we live, I like to call it kind of, it's, it's a neo-Gnostic way. Gnosticism really is about living, believing the spiritual matters and the physical doesn't. And we live it this way. Spiritually and privately, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I need to be forgiven, and I need to live for him. Physically and publicly, I kind of live the way I need to and want to, and I'll work it out for me in the way it should be. And we haven't put those together, and that's what's happening in the early church. They've stopped doing it too. Paul's going, no, 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 you got to live and walk by the Spirit. And by the way, you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, I want to be clear on this. He's not saying repressed desires like every desire is bad which is what we tend to do. All that means, whatever I want and long for, whatever's emotional, whatever I'm passionate about, I gotta put those down. It's about being Spock as a Christian, you know, just live logically and do the right things, kind of push it all away. In case you don't know, did you know that God is full of emotion? Did, did you know that? If you don't, just read any section of the Bible, you'll find out God actually has a lot of emotions he tells us about and experiences. Jesus does that when he walks the earth. God doesn't tell us emotions are bad, but emotions have to be lived out in him. When he's saying desires of the flesh, he's saying you have desires that are towards you in your own way of living. You're inclined for yourself and yourself alone. And those desires that are in your flesh, that are for yourself, that are not for others, that are living only for you are the ones you're to put down. You're not to live that way. He's contrasting a selfish life that you go for what's best for you a centered on you, and a life in the spirit that's centered on humbly loving others. Do you see the contrast? I want to make sure I'm not telling you to bag everything you've ever desired or wanted, but it's to be discriminating about it. That's why when people tell me, I want this and God made me this way, I go, well, 
you can't use the God made me this way thing because our image bearing is broken, which means we have inclinations that are good and evil. We have a mix of this stuff. So just because I'm inclined doesn't make it either right or wrong. It just means it's there. And we need God to begin to help us sort those things out. That's what he's really speaking to us about. He continues. And then he tells us this. Hey, the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, and the spirit is what's contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Did you know there's a battle going on inside of you? We tend to think about our faith positionally. Jesus died, he rose again, he gave me a spirit, I'm positionally good, but we go, did you know you are still gonna battle with your flesh? Did you know it just didn't go, there's a little wand, and you went, oh, all desire's gone, good to go, it's easy. You're gonna war. There's a battle going on between your flesh and the spirit of God in you. And I'm not even sure we're aware of the battle or doing much to go to battle. And Paul's going, guess what? There's a war you've got to go to. There is a battle in your flesh, meaning I want to be the center of this. You can think about it just back to Adam and Eve. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be in control of their lives. They wanted to go their way or be subjected to God. They want to be under him, live the way they were made to live, serve others in love. That's a battle in you. Can we just agree we're all battling? Yeah. Yeah, I hate that we pretend we're not. And Paul's going, there's a battle. There's a war going on. Now, I love that we're talking about this today because in case you don't know, it's, it's very interesting, but we literally uh, are in a very unique day. It's the day of Pentecost. Now, I don't know if you even know church history or wonder about it, but the day of Pentecost is 50 days after Jesus rises. And it's a day we talk about is very simply the giving of the Spirit, meaning that God changes his address. So I want to just explain this in brevity to you so you have a picture of what this day means and what it should mean for us. Okay, so the temple in Pentecost, this is how I want you to see it. So if we go to the time that God was leading Israel, he had Israel build a temple for his presence, and his presence was inside the temple in what's called the Holy of Holies. So there were different levels. There was the outside of the temple that anybody could go to. There's a place where the priests do sacrifices that in that holiness and kind of sacrifice moves for God. And there's a place called the Holy of Holies where God's presence was to reside, and only one went in there one day a year. In other words, you can see there's a barrier to getting close to God, but you also want him to be near physically. Now, there's another piece you should know in the time of Israel, which is that God's spirit at special times and with only a few people and uniquely filled people. In other words, God would uniquely pour his spirit out on someone for a time or for a purpose. So, for example, Samson, who's a guy God gives all this power to, uh, basically, as long as he doesn't cut his hair and he's championing all these things for Israel, and then he gets basically deceived, cuts his hair. Uh, they, they get him, one of their enemies. They basically take his eyes out. Just really pleasant for a Sunday, I know, just to think about it. Gouges his eyes out. He's blind. Uh, God begins to give him his strength back to some degree, and he's getting ready, really, to die. And it says God's spirit filled him again, gave him great power, and he ends up having quite a defeat over all these people in his dying moment. David is given the spirit of God in a unique way, both in how he leads Israel and different things that go on. And we see this again and again. The reason I want you to get it is I think we treat God this way today. Hey, you know what? They seem more spiritual. I bet they have God's spirit. 
but it's for a select few at a select time. Never would it be for me. That's, that's how Israel had to live, and I want you to see it. The last thing is that God gives them these commandments, the Ten Commandments, are given the rules to live by, and then he gives them a whole bunch of other ones to add on to it, the way Israel's to live. So this is how they live before Jesus comes. When Jesus comes and he actually dies on the cross, the moment he dies, that temple curtain is torn in two. The one that is the Holy of Holies where God's presence resides. It's, by the way, it's never torn. And people died even touching the ark inside. So if you, I want you to see when the temple curtain's torn, it's not like, oh, the, the fabric broke. It's like something tore supernaturally. And it's a telling that the Lord's saying, no more. It's not temple anymore. And by the way, it happens when Jesus dies, not when he rises. We often, we don't realize, but Jesus' death itself changes everything. Resurrection is all about the new life now, not just forever. It means something more. We'll come back to that. So the temple curtain's torn. That's what happens when Jesus dies. And it's a statement of the things, the sins that everyone's committed that keep us from being near God can be taken and get us back close to God. What's been broken is now coming back. Now, 50 days later, which by the way is today, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit enters all these believers that are in Jerusalem, all these early people that begin to follow Christ. Every one of them is filled with the Spirit. By the way, every one of them, oh wait, let me say every one of them, every one of them is filled with the Spirit. And I love this. You want to talk about God being strategic? All these, all these people that were, that were Jews came from different parts of the world for Pentecost, for this feast. And then guess where they go when it's done? They go back to where they were. Guess where the Spirit goes? Back to where they were. You talk about an awesome spreader event. Come on. <laughs> we're worried about viruses and masks, and God's given the virus that we need. And it's given and sent out to spread everywhere. And in case you don't know it, and this is a prophecy, actually before Jesus comes, God says, hey, I wrote the commandments on a tablet, but there will come a day when my spirit puts it in your hearts, and there'll be a new way and a new source to live for everyone. <sighs> Not a select few. I like to think of it this way. The temple has gone remote. Seriously. It, it, it was one of the things when, when COVID first hit, and we had so many people worried we couldn't gather in a building, and, and being in community is part of what matters. I'm not dismissing that. But do you realize that the temple of God goes to your sporting event that you go to on Sunday afternoon? When you're at work on Monday morning, guess where the temple is? It's the building you walk into. The coffee shop you go to, the temple just went there. The, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, the temple goes anywhere you go. You want to talk about a brilliant strategist. And by the way, more creative than anything. Oh, yeah, there's this temple where you could come and see me. I think I'll put my temple in my people. And by the way, wherever you go, that's where it is. Now, I know it's a lot more inspiring than your faces are telling me right now. <laughs> and, and I understand. We're from West Michigan. And, you know, I don't want to get too excited. I mean, I didn't watch a touchdown or anything. It's just God giving me his life. I don't know why that's a big deal. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's amazing. Yeah. Like, I so long for it to go from here to here for you. And Paul is trying to get them to understand that. You are so busy fighting about rules. You're so busy trying to do it the right way. You have lost realization of the reality that, that the Spirit actually lives in you. 
and wants to change you from the inside out. Come on, that's amazing. Now, Paul will continue now, and he's going to keep reminding us of these two ways of living. Here's the acts of the flesh. You might have translations that say the works of the flesh, literally the results of living in your own strength for your own ways. He says they're obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And he tells you, I warn you, listen, you live like this, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. Now, I want to be clear, he's not saying if you have an activity like this, he's saying this is the way you live. It's meaning this is what we give ourselves to. But I also want to not have us give ourselves a pass. In the church, we tend to do this. We'll draw our circles around certain ones we don't think we're as prone to. Oh, well, sexual immorality, impurity, I don't do those. Debauchery, I haven't even heard what that means. I'm sure I don't do that. When's the last time someone said, oh, what do you want to do today? Some debauchery? Yeah, I think we'll do debauchery. That sounds good. Which all of these, by the way, are taking something God made and twisting it for yourself. God gave sex to be other-centered in marriage. We take it as recreation, identity, ways we live differently. That's not what he designed us for. We take selfish, sensual desires and say, I just need to medicate and live a different way. And I think those, sometimes for those of us, at least how we appear, we would say we're not part of those. In fact, let's skip down. I mean, nobody's having orgies and those things. We don't know about those. those. Those are far out there. Oh, drunkenness? Well, maybe I do tip them back too much. Maybe I am medicating, but we don't want to really face that. I, uh, that's just... You want to get to the harder places? How about idolatry and witchcraft? Well, I don't even... Witchcraft? I'm not casting spells. No, no. Idolatry and witchcraft mean that you place something in the place of God and say, oh, by the way, it has to be this alongside of Jesus or this instead of, and witchcraft means I got to control how it goes. Think we do those things? I think we do. Want to get harder on it? How about hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage? Hatred, I don't hate people. They deserve my hate. They're so bad. You know them? People say that of me. I know you. You're worth hating. I know I'm worth hating. We justify these things. Selfish ambition, fits of rage, dissensions, factions, envy. Can we be honest that this is a battle we all live in? Instead of writing it off as a list, and this is what we can do in the church. Listen, I'm not going to really face these things, but I'll just do them in a way that's either hidden or unknown so I can appear that I don't. Let me appear that I'm doing better at this instead of actually facing that it's Something we all struggle with in one degree or other. He gives us a list because we're there somewhere, aren't we? Every one of them, the works of the flesh, are working for me, and I must have it, and I must have it now. And then he gives this beautiful contrast. Oh, the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, I love the difference. Acts, meaning we do it on our own. Fruit means it's something God helps us to do because where does the Spirit live? In us. That means that the more connected we are, the more the Spirit wants to bring fruit from that. He's saying this is a result of the Spirit's work in our life. It bring, he brings love, by the way, is at the core of it, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, you might have heard it as, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. By the way, these are not about never having conflict or argument. They're about how even in those things we engage. And if you want to know if the fruit of the Spirit is in your life, why don't you ask the people around you what they see? instead of telling us you're living this way or trying to work harder at it because we can't do this on your own, right? I mean, I know myself. Love, joy, peace, patience, I'm sorry. That is not in my wheelhouse. 
You know, anger fits a rage. That's, I'm a little better at that. He's giving a contrast. About yourself, do it on your own. The work of God to transform your life. Everything can change. Everything can be different. And then he actually gives some practical help on how that is to be. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. By the, the way, this word crucified does not just mean they did it once. Okay, I told my flesh, I'm done with you. And it's all better. It's an ongoing activity. <laughs> what do you think if you and I began to go, God, I want to put these things to death. Help me kill them. Help me put these things down. I want to live in a new way. And in case you're wondering what it looks like, let me just take you to Jesus in Gethsemane. The night before he's about to go to die, he's alone with the Father, and he says, hey, Father, if there's any way I don't have to deal and take this pain on, I'd like to not have it. By the way, that's his flesh. I don't want to experience this in his humanity. But, Father, your will, I surrender. Whatever you want, I will actually die dying to what I want. That's a, that's a pattern you and I should learn. Oh, God, I want these things. Help me. Help me to die and have your be well instead of mine. Did you know the Holy Spirit's in you, by the way, to help you with this battle? Not just to go, hey, I'm watching. When you start doing those things, I don't pay attention. Spirit goes, no, you could never do this on your own. I'm here to help. I don't think we're thinking or looking for access. Takes the other side of it. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Two simple ideas. Living by the Spirit is the source. It means that you and I are living connected to Jesus' very presence. Keeping in step means we actually walk it out. It affects how we live. Isn't that a good way to think about it? Oh, I, I want to get connected to God's presence, and I want to walk this out. And I've said it. I'll say it all through this series. I'll keep saying it. You are not going to get there by a periodic little infusion like an espresso shot like we talked about last week. This is a new way to live, and it demands a new way to pursue. I don't know about you, but the more this life carries on and the busier and crazier it is, the more I need to cultivate the source of God's presence in my life. It's not a unique little fix. It's a way of life. I, I want to give you just some simple ways you might do this, and you might even take a picture of this or just write it down. I'm going to encourage you to pray this throughout your day. Holy Spirit, fill me. Help me, guide me. I want to be really clear. I'm not saying the Spirit leaves you and you need him to keep filling up like it's an empty thing. But Paul tells us very clearly while the Spirit lives in us, we need ongoing fillings. It's like, Holy Spirit, would you just continue to fill me? Would you continue to lead me? Would you continue to guide me? Would you continue to help me? What do you think might happen if your day began that way and you sat in it? What do you think might happen if you did that again at lunchtime? What might happen if you do that before dinner? What might happen? I don't know about you, but I need to pray this multiple times. I can't just settle for once because I atrophy in the day pretty quickly. And then how about this? Help me to die to my flesh and live by the strength and power of Jesus to better love and serve others. I'd like to say if you just try things, it'll get there. But the reality is we need the Spirit to help us every step of the way. And Lord, if we began by actually becoming consistent about asking for his help, consistent about asking him to help us die and surrender, consistently asking him to fill us, consistently asking him to guide us and lead us and change us. The big thing I've, I'm learning in my own faith is the more honest I am about my struggle, it seems to be the more access and freedom I have to God's presence to change me.
man, I, I think we, we said it before, the temple went remote. <laughs> Temple's in all of you. What I'm going to do is see it get ignited and moving. Because it's there. I really don't want to see kind of walls with vines on them because it's growing because nothing's in there. I want to see the presence of God breaking through all of you. And the more we love, the more we die to sin, the more we live for him, the more we see that. Let me pray. Lord, I'm asking, uh, as I did at the beginning, whatever's from you, I'm praying you'll, uh, you'll move in people's lives. I am praying for a fresh wind, a fresh expression of your spirit. Oh, God, I pray you'd open our eyes to our own uh, fleshly ways of living. And I pray your spirit will give us a desire to put those to death and then give us power to help us. In the same way, Lord, I pray you increasingly will give us a desire and even an understanding of how we connect and are sourced in you and living in you. And Lord, help us then walk that out. I pray we will become the church deployed all over in power and in love that will change the world around us. I pray this in your name. Amen.